If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, so I assume some may not, you know, rifling through pockets like a candy cane. So I'm the Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll make sure one gets passed out to you. And those of you in the back, if you could just get Bibles to out into the fellowship tonight, that would be awesome. I don't know why I, I question or doubt every year. In between the two services, I always say to Cheryl, I, you think people are going to come back? You know, you think they're going to be at 8 o'clock on Christmas Eve? And Am I assuming too much to do a whole teaching? And Cheryl says, well, if they're there, it's their fault. Yeah, you're right. So, <laughs> so Bible's open. What I'm going to share with you tonight, this is a teaching like I would give on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. We're going to study straight out of Isaiah chapter 9. You can turn in your Bibles there if you haven't already. What we are told in this chapter, I believe, blows every other possible gift of Christmas right out of the water. I don't think there's anything that you will open or look at tomorrow that is more impacting, more amazing, more astounding, or more wonderful than what we're going to hear tonight. God is remarkable, yeah. God is remarkable. In that, not only did He come and live among us, dwell, put on human flesh, and if if you're new to all this, you're visiting, perhaps someone snuck you in here and you didn't know what you were getting into, just know this, I absolutely believe that God came and dwelt among us. But the part of the reason I believe that is not just because I've been told it all my life, it's because He said He was going to thousands of years ahead of time. And in Isaiah's case, 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah begins to preach and prophesy and talk about this this Messiah character, this Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel in the Bible meaning God with us. Why would he do that unless he was just off his rocker? But when you start to align the prophecies of Isaiah and the other Hebrew prophets with the life of Jesus Christ, the alignment is absolutely astounding. As a matter of fact, it's flawless. Beyond that, it's impossible that any one person could fulfill the over 300 plus prophecies of the coming of Messiah in His first coming, and Jesus fulfilled every single one. So our faith in Christianity here is not a blind faith. This is not, oh, I was raised that way, or oh, that sounds kind of nice to believe. There's a song on the uh, Rat Pack CD, Christmas CD. I don't know if any of you have that. Songs for the Rat Pack, and it's, you know, Frank Sinatra and... And Dean Martin and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And it's the dumbest song I've ever heard in my life. And it got onto our little Christmas mix today. And it started playing. And Cheryl and I just looked at each other. I think the song's called I Believe. But it's all about believing in fairy tales and leprechauns. And that's why I believe at Christmas. And I was going, are you kidding? Deleted! <laughs> because our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a blind belief. We don't believe these things because, you know, it feels good. It is an informed Belief based and grounded in the truth. I think you'll see more of that tonight. But look at verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah speaking said, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now you hear that, you might say, okay, I get the child is born part, but the whole government on his shoulders and peace and all that, don't see that. I'm not getting that at all. Bear with me. Let's pray one more time. Father, we need You to teach us Your Word tonight. We ask You, Lord, if we might open this gift tonight, that our hearts would be opened up to hear and receive truth, that we would see clearly that all blinders would come off. And when we're through with this, Lord, that every one of us walking out the door would say, Wow, You are wonderful. Bless now, Lord, this time in Your Word. And use it to your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. An indescribable gift. Now, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that gift. That's what Paul is talking about there. But how do you describe the indescribable? Jesus is this indescribable gift. And Paul uses this word only here in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else in the Greek scriptures, in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Indescribable. Anekdiagetos. Say that with me. No. Anekdiagetos. The word literally means unspeakable, unable to fully recount, and yet Paul does it through all his letters. It's an indescribable gift, but let me tell you about it. (laughs) I can't even speak of these things, but let's talk. It's remarkable to me that he even uses the word. It's like saying, I love to tell the story, but I can't. I love the old, old story, but I don't quite get it. So I can't even share it with you. And even the most informed among us here tonight won't fully understand the gift of Jesus until He comes. I am convinced of that. And yet the Bible continues to tell us about this indescribable gift. We're going to try. We're going to try to describe the indescribable tonight from a prophet's perspective. Now, I need to ask you, has anyone started their Christmas shopping yet? For 2012. Next year, anyone getting a jump on it? See, Isaiah started his 700 years early. Wanted to make sure he was ready for that first Christmas, apparently. And speaking of the birth of Jesus, the Apostle Matthew quotes Isaiah, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. He quotes Isaiah 7, 14 that we just looked at a couple Sundays back. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew says the whole birth of Jesus fulfills that prophecy right there. Remarkable. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. In fact, if you've been around here, you know Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 is called the book of Emmanuel. Within the larger scroll of Isaiah, these five chapters are all about Emmanuel, God with us. The name is used multiple times, but the descriptions throughout keep bringing us back to none other than Jesus Christ. Amazing. Isaiah describes the indescribable. I want you to look back at chapter 8 as we kind of, we need to roll into chapter 9. We need a little background here. Now, as you're looking at Isaiah 8 and turning there, I, I, I have to be honest with you, and some of you who know me know this, I'm a sap, especially when it comes to holidays and Christmas. The Christmas, Christmas morning ambiance has to be just right. Extra Pop-Tarts? Extra Pop-Tarts are a must. <laughs> 
The tree's got to be lit. The mantle lights have to be on. The fireplace has to be crackling. I don't care if it's 90 degrees. Now, it's not going to be in Washington. But I did many, many Christmases in Southern California. And I'm telling you, that fireplace was on. <laughs> At least for 15 minutes. you got to have the right mood. The joyful music of Mannheim Steamroller typically tells our kids who are downstairs it's time to rush for the presents. You know, I mean, I do the whole thing. And then the greed and the avarice begins. It's marvelous. (laughs) But the setting, the setting to God giving His most awesome, wonderful gift, this indescribable gift, was utter darkness, gloom, despair, sorrow. This was the backdrop into which Jesus was born into this world, into the place we know of as Israel, Judea. Verse 18 of chapter 8 tells us, Isaiah speaking, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Remarkably, we do that in our country a lot now. We talked about that Wednesday night. This country, this modern, enlightened country, talks to the dead all the time. People going to palm readers, people going to have their fortunes told, people believing in tarot cards or horoscopes in the newspaper. It's foolishness. Why talk to the dead about the living? Rather than talking to the living God who created the living. That's what Isaiah is saying. And he says in verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And then they will look to the earth. (laughs) We have a lot of that going on in our country too. Let's look to the earth. That's our rescue. That's our salvation. If we can save it, maybe it will save us. Bad news, gang. It's not looking too good. But listen. Behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. The eyes of the people of Israel, by the time Jesus came on the scene, their eyes were so accustomed and adjusted to the dark, they couldn't even see the looming shadows of destruction. In Jesus' day, that looming shadow of destruction would be Rome, but in Isaiah's day, the looming shadows of destruction looked like Assyria and Babylon. As Assyria crushed northern Israel... And as Babylon would would come in and crush southern Judah. But I want to show you something that that is incredible. Verse 18, if you look back just at that verse. I said I would explain this on Wednesday night. So those of you who just came back for this verse and you're going to leave after I'm done, you can at least hear this. Isaiah writes, listen to this. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah says it was into that darkness that he, the prophet Isaiah, and his kids were for signs and wonders in Israel. And he got his whole family involved in it. His wife was a prophetess. His sons were named as signs for Israel. And we've talked about that in the last few weeks here. But what's remarkable here is it wasn't just his family calling that Isaiah is describing. It was a prophecy. When Isaiah spoke these words, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel, it's prophetic. How so? Isaiah and his children were just a picture of Jesus and his children. 
Wait, Jesus had children? Well, yeah, didn't you read the Da Vinci Code? (laughs) John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. He's talking about being born again. If you are born again by belief in Jesus Christ, you are one of Jesus' children. You are one of God's kids. You enter into this family, and it's a marvelous family. We're a little messed up down here, but we're going to be perfect with Him forever. And this great family, we are the children. Well, how do we know Isaiah's statement was prophetic? Because the Bible tells us so. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. I'll just read this to you. You might want to jot it down and look at it later. For both He who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, His children, are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. (laughs) Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus talking about the Father. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, listen, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You see, the Hebrew writer tells us when Isaiah said that, he was speaking for Jesus who would say, Behold, I and the children God has given me, we will be for signs and for wonders. Gang, he is saying that in the same way Isaiah and his children were signs and wonders in the dark age of Israel, so Jesus and his children are for signs and wonders in this darkening age. That means it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus' children in this world who are supposed to be for signs and wonders. What are you talking about, Rick? I mean, reflecting the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. And you may feel like I'm amping up on this. I have been for eight years now. That if we are followers of Jesus, it is our calling, every single one of us, to be for signs and wonders in this world. As dark as the world is getting, that we would still be people of light and be obvious about it. Not lording it over, not being arrogant, because we know our righteousness is not from us. It's from Him. He cleans us. He makes us righteous so that we can reflect His glory. But we need to be about that reflection. We need to be people of the light and not of the dark. As Paul said, we don't preach ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. But Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So listen, don't get discouraged in the darkness. Be for signs and wonders. Be used of the Lord. Gifted by God to be a light in a dark place. Maybe the dark place is your family. Maybe some of you are thinking about tomorrow and you're already going... (laughs) And you're saying, do we really have to go? You know what? Go be a light. If there's darkness in your family, be the light. Love them all the more. And if they're jerks to you, love them even more than that. And outdo the jerkness with the loveness. I just made those words up. You can use them if you want to. Be lights in the dark. What if people ignore the light? Oh, you mean like in Isaiah's day? (laughs) You know, they will. Many will. But you shine. You shine for signs and wonders. Darkness or light, you know, it's a decision we all get to make. We can decide to be lights in Jesus' name or we can decide to live in the dark. 
I don't know why you would want to live in the dark. You know, if you've ever tried to make your way through the house at night when all the lights are out and you've ended up with bruises all over your shins, I don't know why you would want to live in the dark. But people choose that. By the time the hope of Israel was delivered, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, Israel was bent and bedraggled and burdened and pumped out. It was a dark place. It was getting darker in Isaiah's day. Like I said, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they all got wiped out. When they finally returned to the land after captivity, southern Judah, it was 538 B.C., and it would never regain the splendor that it had during David and Solomon's time. Oh, those marvelous days, the glory days, they could look back, but they could never look at what they had after that and see anything of glory. Even today, what do the people of Israel have to look at? Threats. Menace. A world that is as anti-Semitic today as it has ever been. Gloomy. Dark. Why would God choose to deliver the perfect gift with such a dark and gloomy circumstance? It was the perfect gift of Christmas. The Verde Bird Coast Guard Rescue Ship. I don't know if any of you remember this. Maybe I was the only one. It was back in the early 70s. It was a ship, a Coast Guard ship, uh, made out of styrofoam. In fact, a lot of kids shorted them out because they put them in the bathtub. They weren't supposed to because on it, it had an electronic helicopter. Any of you remember these? Am I the only one? If you see it, buy it for me. They're, they're like, you know, 200 bucks now. So that's not bad. Pastor, pastor gift, you know. So anyway... Styrofoam Coast Guard ship with this hub in the middle and this wire that came out to the helicopter and another wire that went out five or so feet away so you wouldn't get knocked in the head with the helicopter and this thing would go around. I loved it. Wanted it so bad, the Verdi Bird. And I just knew this was the Christmas for me. This was the one I was going to get that bad boy. And I was searching the house for it. You know, The downstairs closet. That's where Mom and Dad normally kept the gifts. And I snuck into the closet, and there it was, leaning up against the back. I, I spilled the beans to my mom. I was in such a state of uncontainable elation, you know, over this thing. Then I went straight up to the kitchen, and I was like, Boy, I sure hope I get that Birdie Bird Coast Guard rescue ship for Christmas. You know, I mean, I, could, I don't know, I don't remember, but I may even have been doing a jig at the time. My mom, oh, it was bad timing. She was in the midst of Christmas stress. The noose was tied around her neck. And and she lost it. She lost it. And she declared that this gift would most certainly be returned to the store. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I went from sheer elation to abject depression in an instant. I'm on the floor, no, I'll forget that I saw it, please. Save the birdie bird. I was devastated. I was like Ralphie in A Christmas Story. You know the line where he says, I was surrounded by other kids who were going to get what they wanted for Christmas. Oh, I was so bummed. But Christmas morning, there it was. There it was in all its glory. Completely unexpected, but joyfully received. Now listen, it's a lame example, I will confess. But the deeper the gloom, the greater the joy when the gift is realized. And as the gift of of Jesus came into this dark gloom, something exploded. It's called the church. 
went like gangbusters against persecution, against anger, against difficulty, against rejection. It just grew. Still growing, by the way. Still growing. We can commiserate that our country is becoming increasingly anti-Christian, and yet Christianity is still the fastest growing faith on the planet. Still growing. Now, God wasn't playing games with Israel, but gang, it was into the setting of Israel's great need that the Savior came. And if you happen to be in a dark place tonight, oh, listen to me, where better for God to give the gift of light than right into your darkness? Ask Him for it. By the way, verse 1 of chapter 9, some of you Bible students know, is actually not verse 1 of chapter 9, it's verse 23 of chapter 8, if we were going back and reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. So he continues on, he says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The region of the Israelite tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, was called the Galil Hagoim. The Galil Hagoim, or Galilee of the Gentiles, it literally means the circuit of the nations. Because that way by the sea, it says by the sea, the way of the sea is called the Via Maris. And it was a heavily trotted, uh, trade route, or, or uh, heavily traveled route through Israel, and it went right up through Galilee of the Gentiles, the circuit of the nations. It was the gateway through which foreigners would come into Israel, either invaders with their perilous intentions, or traders with their not-so-obvious pagan influence. That's where they came in. And it was in that place where the light first began to shine. In fact, I'll just read this to you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Galil, Hagoim. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is marvelous to me. Jesus, the bulk of His ministry, though He would go down to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals and ultimately for His death, the bulk of His ministry happened in the circuit of the nations. The Galil Hagoim, there in the Galilee. And so... In this place of great darkness for the Jews and gloomy outlook for Israel, that's where Jesus showed up. But it was so dark that even faithful Jews had trouble believing there's any way Messiah would come now. It had been 400 years of silence since the last prophet had even spoken. People didn't know what to do, what to believe. Our country's only been here 200 years. Double that. And that's how long the people had not heard a word from God. And it was so bad at that time. Well, this was the typical response. John chapter 145 tells us, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. I like that response. 
come and see. That's a good one, by the way. If someone says to you, is there anything about going to church? Why do you do that? Why do you go to church? What are you into this Jesus stuff for anyway? Come and see. It's indescribable. you got to come see for yourself. Come check it out. And that's exactly what Philip says to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel shows up and is blown away by who Jesus is. And he believes in Him. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. So where it's dark, He illuminates. Where there's confusion or clutter, He makes things clear. That's who He is. A light given for illumination that the truth might be seen. By the way, when Jesus said that about Himself, I am the light of the world, do you know where He was? He was in Jerusalem at the time for a festival there called the Feast of Dedication. You may know of it today as the festival called Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. He was there for that celebration. It's also called the Festival of Lights. And it was at the Festival of Lights that Jesus said, Hey, (laughs) I'm the light of the world. You can light your eight candles, but check me out. I'm the one. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, again, God said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, back with Isaiah. As the prophecy continues... Isaiah leaps beyond the first coming of Jesus to Galil of the Gentiles. In verse 2, he leaps from there. The people who will walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And in verse 3, suddenly we go to the second coming of Jesus. Watch this, verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor was at, uh, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Isaiah here compares the second coming of Jesus, which is yet to happen, but could be any time. He compares that second coming of Jesus to the battle for Midian. The battle for Midian, it was fought for a guy, some of you may recall his name, a guy named Gideon. God called Gideon and said, I I want you to amass an army, I want you to go fight. Listen, Judges 7 tells the story, but Gideon was not the hero. He was the reluctant hero at best, but really it wasn't Gideon at all. He had 32,000 men with him, pitted against Midian's 132,000, by the way. And God said, got too many guys there for me to work with, Gideon. 32,000. So God begins the whittling process and Gideon ends up with 300 men to go up against 132,000. He brings it all the way down to the impossible. And then God sends them into battle. Check out their armaments. Horns, torches, and empty clay pots. Go fight! What am I going to do with this stuff? And it's a remarkable story in which God routs Midian. Freaks them out. They blow the trumpets. It's at night. The Midianites were freaked out just by the sound. And then they pull the lights out of the pots and all this light and noise. They're like, oh, run for your lives. And they ran and God routed them. And a miracle happened and Midian was taken out. 
It was a a remarkable thing. And this is Isaiah's comparison. He says there's going to be a miraculous battle which looks unwinnable, but suddenly Messiah himself just comes in and takes apart the enemy. Wipes them out. Verse 5 even says that every boot and bloody cloak will be fuel. In other words, every last vestige of war following this battle will be done away with when Emmanuel comes. And I just I can't help myself. I just got to read it to you because it's Christmas Eve and, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or golden crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Okay, cool. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. That's Jesus. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus coming back as in the battle of Midian, but oh, it'll be so much more glorious. And he's just going to wipe out the enemy. Well, if that's the case, Pastor, why is he called the Prince of Peace? I'll tell you that in a little bit and stop reading ahead. <laughs> Isn't it great to know you've got someone who will fight for you? I mean, when I was a kid, I, that was, you know, what we all, always used to say, oh yeah, well my dad can beat your dad. I didn't know if it was true. I hoped, you know. But if you were the first one to say it, then you probably were the one with the bigger dad, you know. And we would say these things to each other. Emmanuel, gang, is going to whoop all over Israel's enemies. You do not want to be on the other side when Jesus comes back again. And at that time, Isaiah says he's going to deliver two gifts to Israel. Two gifts for which Israel has long waited for for 3,000 years. Number one, Israel is going to be magnified. Israel will be magnified. This word multiplied there in verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. Speaking the nation of Israel, the word is herbitha in the Hebrew, and it's best translated magnify. You shall magnify the nation. Not just multiply. It doesn't just speak of numbers that the nation's going to get bigger. It speaks of glory. This nation, all the rest of the world will look to and say, wow, they're awesome. This is something that the Jewish people have not known since the days of Solomon. They will know it in the days of Jesus. A magnified people. And the second thing he's going to do, and I think this is just great, Israel will not only be magnified, they'll be married. M-E-R-R-Y. They'll be joyful. They'll be full of of merriment and joy. The word gladness there. You shall increase their gladness is simcha in the Hebrew and it literally means merriment or joy. It's one of Isaiah's favorite words, by the way. He will use it 24 times in this book. They'll be filled with joy. Talk about a Merry Christmas. But you know what? This joy will far surpass any joy we've ever experienced at Christmas time. Any joy Jewish people today would experience during the eight days of Hanukkah won't even come close to the merriment that Jesus will bring in that day. Or for that matter, any celebration, Jew or Gentile. No Kwanzaa can compare. No Ramadan. No Festivus. (laughs) 
There will be no... We have no idea. You think you can be happy now? And I hope you are. I hope you have a Merry Christmas and I hope tomorrow is wonderful and joyful and tonight is too. But it won't compare to when Jesus comes and brings true, eternal joy. And this joy is available not just to Jews, but to Gentiles alike. Remember, the light of the world came to the Galil Hagoim, the circuit of the nations. Jesus came for the whole world. He came for anybody who would put faith in Him and become children of God through Jesus by faith. Now, back in verse 4, it does say that He will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. I love that. Do you have a burden on your back tonight? Is there something weighing you down? Maybe it's an illness you're worried about or a relationship that's broken. Or a job stress, you don't know what's going to happen. Finances, whatever. Are your shoulders feeling weighed down? Is there a rod of oppression in your life? When He comes again, He will fight the battle for Israel. But listen, He already fought the battle to lift that stuff off your shoulders at a place called Calvary. And the battle He fought, He died in. And He rose after And in His rising, He brings, He gives you and me opportunity to be free. Free from the typical burdens and weights and oppressions of sin in this world. That's why Christians can be and should be the merriest of all people. The most joyful. Hey, your life's in the toilet. What are you smiling for? Because I got Jesus. And my toilet's clean. (laughs) Yes, life can get messy, but Jesus is coming. Yes, life can be hard. It's hard for everyone. Don't kid yourself and don't let the enemy kid you either or dissuade you to think that your life is so much harder than anybody else's. Guess what? Everybody deals with struggles. You're not alone. And God knows that. And He wants you to have the joy that only comes through faith in Jesus. And it's the kind of joy when people look at you, they say, you're so messed up. I know. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Joy even in sorrow. Wow. That's what He came to bring. In fact, Isaiah tells us this. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Me. Me who, Isaiah? No. Jesus. Because Jesus said those words when He launched His public ministry. You can read them. Luke chapter 4. He came to do all of that. Now, there is still a little bit more to this indescribable gift that we have yet to see. We've seen what He does when He comes. Now Isaiah describes who He is. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on His shoulders. In this single sentence... Isaiah expresses the humanity and the deity of the indescribable gift. He describes the person of Jesus Christ. He says a child will be born to us. Well, that speaks of his humanity. A child, like any child. He'll be born. Yeah, it will be a miraculous virgin birth, but yet once he's born, he's not going to look any different than any other baby. He's going to cry like babies cry. He's going to need to be fed like babies need to be fed. He's going to need protection and warmth and help and nurture like any baby would. A child will be born to us. 
And this is the child of Isaiah 7.14, whose name is Emmanuel. Because the child is in all truth not only a child, he is God. A child will be given to us. A son. A son will be given to us. And that exemplifies the deity of Christ. Now, I know people struggle with this. We've talked about this recently. Let me remind you of this. Some say, is he God or is he son of God? Listen, you've got to put your, th- your, your yarmulkes on. <laughs> got to think Hebrew here. If he's son of God, he's God. Do you understand? If he's son of God, he's God. Now you might say, well, well, yeah, but Hayden is son of Rick, but he's not Rick. Oh, listen. I'm human. Son of Rick. is He may not always act like it, but he's human. <laughs> I got the head shake. Yes! He's human because I'm human. Son of Rick is a human Man, a human boy. Son of God is God. Because He bears the nature of the Father. And the same, all six of my kids are human kids. Born of humans. Jesus is born of a human. Born of God. Son of God. As the Son, He bears the Father's nature. What's the Father's nature? Well, Paul describes Jesus this way. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through Him and for Him that's amazing He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Oh, 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 wait a minute. He's firstborn. Firstborn from the dead. Well, if He's firstborn, then that speaks of when He was firstborn, and therefore He's human. No, 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 no. Yamaka, Hebrew thinking, the firstborn means that not only as the Son that He bears the Father's nature, but as the Son, Jesus bears the rights, the privileges, the inheritance, and the authority of the Father. That's Hebrew thinking. The firstborn Son takes over from Dad. That's what He does. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. And by the way, Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead, because He's the first one to be born from the dead, resurrected, and never die again. Everyone else got a second funeral. It really stinks. You know, Lazarus had to plan twice. Don't use the songs they used last time because it bored me to death. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Glenn. That was brave humor right there. <laughs> What's the matter? Casket your tongue? Come on. All right. So. <laughs> The government, verse 6 continues, the government will rest on His shoulders. That's the authority of the Father given over to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 27, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And in John 3.35, John tells us the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Listen to that. If you're wondering, how do you get it? That's it. You believe in the Son, you have eternal life. You give your life to Him. You say, I believe. I accept Jesus. I want Him to be my Lord. Boom. Eternity. You've just walked into it. 
But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Now, hold on to your stockings. The indescribable gift is about to be described in the most marvelous way. Four names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. Four names. Actually, some argue that there are five names. Five possible names, depending on how you read this. The first name, Pele Yoetz. Pele Yoetz, wonderful counselor. But here's why some say five names. Wonderful is not an adjective that describes counselor, it's a noun. It's two nouns put together. Wonderful counselor, Pele Yoetz. Jesus is Pele. Simply wonderful. He's just wonderful. This is the second and only time, by the way, God is called by that name. Wonderful. Pele. The first time, an angel of the Lord came to a man named Manoah and his barren wife. And this angel of the Lord told them they were going to become parents to a boy named Samson. So Samson's birth was foretold prior to it happening. Judges chapter 13, verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is Pele? My name's wonderful. Learn know my name? There it is. It's wonderful. Only one person has ever been called Wonderful, or called Pele in the Bible, and that is Messiah. It's the name for Messiah. Well, wait a minute, Rick, but I thought it was an angel of the Lord. The Hebrew word for angel there is malach, and it means messenger or representative. And most of the time, when you study through the Hebrew Scriptures, when you see this personage called the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus. I believe. And I can give you all kinds of reasons I believe that. He is a representative of the Lord. What does the Hebrew writer tell us? But that He is the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus comes as God in the flesh. He is the fleshly representation of God. And in the story, Manoah and his wife, they want to worship this angel. Well, that would be blasphemy. But the angel doesn't discourage that. Only God can receive worship. And so this one comes to them saying, why do you ask my name? Seeing it as wonderful. And clearly Manoah understood who it was he was talking to because in Judges 13.22 he said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Pele. Wonderful. And I think they had seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. Pele, its Hebrew meaning as a noun is mysteriously wonderful. Beyond description, you could say indescribable. Wonderful, wonderful gift. So wonderful, you could use as the defining word for every name given here. He's wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful mighty God. He's the wonderful eternal father. He's the wonderful prince of peace. He's just wonderful. Anyway, you look at him. Jesus is wonderful. But Isaiah pairs wonderful with Yoetz, counselor. Who do you go to for counsel? Who do you call up when, when you're not sure what to do or who to turn? Do you go to a pastor or a psychologist? Do you go to a, a friend? Let me tell you something about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. 
Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Father, listen, full of grace and truth. That's what I'm looking for in a counselor. Grace and truth. I don't always get that from my friends. Not that my friends aren't great people. I don't always get grace and truth. You know, you have some friends, they'll give you all the grace in the world and they will never challenge you to anything else. They're just there to, you know, whatever you need, whatever you do, whatever's going on in your life, that's cool. They're your grace friends. But when you need to be kicked upside the head, when you need a little conviction, when you need someone to challenge you and really make you think through what you're doing, then you go to the friends who bring you the truth, you know? But you only have so much of them, and then you need to go back to the grace people, because those truth people are really starting to bug me. Because they're always telling me what I really don't want to hear. Listen, Jesus gives both. Grace and truth. To the woman who was caught in adultery, thrown down at his feet in front of him, what did he give her? Grace. Doesn't anyone condemn you, he said? No, sir. They've all left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Grace. Now, go your way and sin no more. Truth. He brings compassion. He brings conviction. Oh, He is Peleowetz, the wonderful Counselor. Isaiah 28-29 tells us the Lord of hosts has made His counsel wonderful and His wisdom great. And Jesus is both wonderful and He's Counselor. He is wonderful Counselor. He is second name, El Gabor. Mighty God. El Gabor. This title for Messiah is only used in two places in the Bible. Or in Isaiah. Uh, two other places, uh, this place and then one place in Isaiah and one place in Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 21 tells us a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to El Gabor, to the mighty God. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for You. Who shows loving kindness to thousands? but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name. Great and mighty God, El Gibor. So it's used those two places, and then right here, mighty God. You don't have to fully understand the concept of the Trinity, but you cannot get around this declaration of the divine bearing of Jesus Christ. If this child born to us, this son given to us, is not only wonderful counselor, but he's also El Gabor, mighty God, then he is one and the same with the Father, and there's no question about it. God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. Isaiah only uses the word El to describe God, as he uses right here. But if that's still not enough for you, Pereyuetz, El Gabor, he's also named Abiad. Abiad, everlasting father. <laughs> I thought he was the son. He is. So, but it says here he's ever the everlasting or eternal father. He is. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Indescribable. Beyond comprehension. Isaiah 63.16 says, You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old everlasting is your name. Yahweh. The Lord is everlasting Father. But Messiah is also everlasting Father by the names given Him here in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you want just a little more on that, follow Jesus as He explains this truth. He unveils it in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8 verse 19. To the Pharisees He says, You know neither Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. You want to get to know My Father? 
Get to know me. Hmm. He goes further. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Yeah, but he means one like they hang out a lot. No, he says I and the Father are one. And the Jews understood that. They were inflamed. They picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good, good works from the Father, of which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, listen, you being a man, don't miss this, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus did not dispute it. And in John chapter 14, that precious precious passage on the last night of his life, before the crucifixion, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's eternal Father. He's the exact representation of the character, of the personality, of the person of God in the flesh. And now we come to the last name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Sar Shalom. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Now, back to the earlier question. If he's called Prince of Peace, why does he come back in battle? Understand that peace will be the result of his return, and it will be the rule of his reign. He will put down all war. And it will be the result, the ultimate result of Jesus coming back to this earth is going to end all wars. And it will be the standard of His righteous kingdom for a thousand years as He rules and reigns from Jerusalem on this earth. The Bible tells us, Revelation 20, read it on your own time, tomorrow while the kids are unwrapping. (laughs) Sar Shalom. In one fell swoop, He will take out all opposition. An incredible move. But gang, when you read Prince of Peace, the Jewish understanding of peace is absolutely significant here. And I want you to get this down. It is not merely the absence of war or the absence of strife. Peace, shalom, to the Hebrew mind means prosperity. It means harmony within and without. It means well-being. It's peace in the heart and peace with God. In fact... Victor Buxfazen puts it this way, a Jew himself says, Shalom is the perfect state of man. That's Shalom. When the Jewish people say Shalom, that's, that's the word. That's what they're indicating by the word. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, means this is the one who will bring us into the perfect state of man. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more family conflict. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more heartache or angst or confusion or all gone. Perfect harmony, all brought by the Prince of Peace. Who doesn't want that? I mean, I can't think of a better gift. Verdi bird aside. (laughs) The perfect state of man. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And people say, Rick, why do you think he's going to rule and reign from the throne of David? Because he said he would? Well, that's awfully simple-minded. Thank you. (laughs) That's what it says. This is a promise, gang, to the Jewish people that the throne of David would result in being established 
And that this Messiah would come, Emmanuel would come and rule from that throne. And God keeps His promises. And so Israel will be magnified and they will be merry when Jesus comes and sits on that throne and establishes it and upholds it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Listen, when does His government start to increase? Do we have to wait for it? Do we? It's already started. Remember what I said a little while earlier? Christianity is still increasing. It is still growing. It continues to grow. And for every Christian who dies and their spirit goes immediately to be at home with the Father, it's still growing. We have no concept of how massive this whole thing is. We will when we get to heaven. When we look around at what the Bible describes only as multitudes worshiping around the throne, it will blow our minds what God has accomplished. You think we're the underdog in this world? (laughs) Think again. The word increase, it is the active form of the verb, and it means it's already started. From the moment the child is born to us, the kingdom begins to increase. And it is ever-increasing, and it is ever-growing. And we can't always see it. And Jesus was clear, my kingdom's not of this world, it's bigger than this world. Don't limit yourselves to this world. This is something huge. The moment the child was born to us, and the son was given to us, those those tiny little feet, (laughs) wrapped in swaddling clothes, from then to the mighty feet standing on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, we're told, Zechariah 14, will split in the middle. Such is His stance and His power when He comes. His kingdom has been and is now on the increase and it can't be stopped. Check this out. No laws can stop the increase of the kingdom of God. Can't do it. No governmental authority can oppress and slow down or stop the increase of the kingdom. It just keeps going. It keeps moving forward. Some of you know this. I mean, one little example that happened in the last few years here at the bridge was the fact that we got temporary use permits for this barn and for the portables next door when Island County said, you will never get temporary use permits. Can't stop it. You can't stop God. You just can't. I mean, if we were, you know, a thousand people standing in a field with a bunch of cows, Bibles open and praising the Lord, you cannot stop the increase of the kingdom. The ball is rolling and gang, it's picking up speed. And some of you are saying, please, Rick, could you do the same? I will. Okay. <laughs> the zeal, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I love that. Merry Christmas! The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do everything that we've talked about. This this indescribable gift in Jesus Christ becomes more apparent to us every moment of our lives. But that question still bugs me. and I'm going to end on this. If it's indescribable, how then can we describe it? When Paul uses the word indescribable for Jesus, he is doing what we all do when we're faced with something that's wonderful. When we see something that's absolutely wonderful, like a sunset that defies description. Oh, I wish you were down on the bridge last night to see. I can't even tell. I just, it was, um, I have no words. Indescribable. Or a moment in worship where you're stunned into silence. How do you explain that to somebody? Or the love of God. Wow. Indescribable. What's your point, Rick? Some things have to be experienced to be understood. And giving a life to Jesus 
you got to experience Him to even really get what I'm talking about here. For these names, for this description, for this mighty prophecy to, to really transform your life, you got to experience Jesus. Because a life in Jesus Christ is like no other. You know, I would rather be here on Christmas Eve than anywhere else in the world. Rather be there than anywhere in the world, period. But if I have to be in this world, this is where I want to be. I want to be in the Word of God. I want to be with people of God. I want to be worshiping God because there's nothing better. And God knows this. That's why He gave His Son in the, in the first place. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this Christmas, may you know and tell others how wonderful He really is. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together.